Director of Albany Human Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except it has occurred in this case on a Tuesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. And on this edition of the program, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, one finds that a number of hitters in recent years have experienced breakout seasons after making very clear adjustments to their swings. Josh Donaldson, J.D. Martinez, of course, are the most notable among this group. There are certainly others. This season, even, for example, uh, Yonder Alonso is hitting more home runs after telling Eno Saris in the offseason that he was attempting to, quote-unquote, punish the ball. Byron Buxton, as well, uh, has exhibited some improvement in recent weeks, which he himself traces back to a conversation with Paul Malter and other Minnesota coaches a few weeks ago, uh, a conversation regarding his leg kick. So here's some examples of players who've made real adjustments and experienced real results. Otwan, however, expect every player who's announced a swing change to experience instant returns. Likely not is the answer. How, I asked Dave Cameron, can one assess the likely efficacy? I don't actually say the word efficacy, but I might have, if I were thinking, I would have used the word efficacy. How can one assess the likely efficacy of an adjustment before it begins meriting actual results? In any case, that forms the bulk of our conversation here, that conversation. Also discussed and somewhat related, Aaron Altair, Phillies outfielder Aaron Altair. He shortened his swing this offseason, and he's transformed into Phillies best hitter. Uh, we discussed that. I also uh, forced Cameron to think about my yard, from which I removed all of the turf. Um, and there's we discussed that junk for maybe the first five minutes. So if you don't care for that, fast forward. Dave Cameron also in his wisdom, proposes a game in this edition of the program. I mean, like, let's play a game. How many Mariners starting pitchers can you name? All those yucks and other yucks in what's to follow. Before we get to that conversation, allow me to remind you that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. You can support the great work at Fangraphs.com. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, you can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows you to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads facilitating faster loading speeds, from what I understand, and also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertising. And with that advertising now complete, let us move to the conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Let us begin right now. Dave Cameron, you know that uh, sometimes I will um, I will describe to you or propose to you um, a scenario that has occurred in real life, and I ask you what in baseball is like that. Yeah, uh, I will not. I'm not going to force you to do that, too. But I know that you are always um, you are always thirsty for stories of, of home improvement. From oh, my side. yeah. I tore out my entire lawn. The entire thing. Yeah. By yourself. Yeah. Like no, 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 no. We hired landscapers okay, to tear right. it out. Yeah. And then our, my neighbor said, um, um, he said, uh, what? Uh, when are the landscapers coming back? And I said, uh, they're not. So <laughs> that'll give you an idea of what the lawn looks like. It's, nothing is uh, nothing good about it at the moment. Are you going with like a, you're replacing the grass with some kind of garden? Or what, what's the end game here? It's going to be grass. There's going to be... Uh, meadow wildflowers. The point is, here's the point. 
Here's the point, Cameron. It's a total rebuild. That's that's the um, that's the metaphor here. Your your lawn is the San Diego Padres. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <clears throat> I guess so. Yeah, and then you I, you see what sticks. You see what doesn't stick. Um, you know, hopefully you get uh, and and the other the nice thing probably like a rebuild, like a baseball rebuild, is uh, you could just try something, and if it doesn't work, you can move on. You could see if Aaron Altair is good. Yeah, was your lawn uh, you know? As hideous as the Padres have been lately? I mean, it's worse. It's the worst. It's below replacement level right now. I know, but before you ripped it out, was it? Oh, no. It was fine before, actually. Oh, so uh, you, you did the white flag trade. You took a relatively is, decent lawn and you broke it up for no reason? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, just to make it... Well, what are cases where a general manager has maybe <clears throat> broken up a team just because it wasn't how he would have wanted to build it? No, no, does that sound like a thing that people do? Uh, maybe Jerry DePoto and the Mariners, right? Like, he took over a team that wasn't very good and was very DH-heavy, and he's turned it into a speed and defense, or he tried to before they all got hurt. Speed and defense and pitching team. Um, so I think that would be an example. He didn't rebuild, and they're still trying to win, but he changed the skill sets. Of everybody? Yeah. yeah. And so what? They have, well, what's their record right now? Uh, 17 and 21, but that's because you're actually starting for them on Wednesday. I haven't been informed yet. Yeah, their, their pitching is uh, such dire straits that they've called you out of the bullpen. Yeah, I, I like my chances. Um, here, I'll you, send you. A, you couldn't possibly be any worse than their other options. Well, I saw. Um, I saw someone had made a mention on Twitter. It said the Giovanni Gallardo starting because there's no one else. Yeah, I mean, like, let's play a game. How many Mariners starting pitchers can you name? Well, you forced me to do this recently, and I didn't do so badly. Has it's, it changed? It's even, it's even worse now. So is Iwakuma pitching? No, he's hurt. Oh, because he wasn't hurt last time. So yeah, he this wasn't is... hurt. Now he is. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, Giovanni Gallardo. Yep, that's the only I, one I think you might get. And no, and 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 I had a little help. Oh, I know because I did the nerd scores. Chase DeJong is around. Apparently, it's De Young. Uh, oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I think that's actually the the Dutch pronunciation. Right. Yeah. It's really just the bad. That's, uh, that's yeah. The bad. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, this revisits a common theme between us. I do not regard these types of pitchers bad. You're trying to make the point that they're bad major leaguers, but yeah, you do it. Yeah. You um, you have a flair for the dramatic. Um, I think that might be where I'm at. <laughs> Casey Lawrence and Matt Latos. <laughs> no, no, wrong team. Although they did claim Casey Lawrence on waivers, but he's in AAA. Uh, they've got Ariel Miranda. That's someone you've ever heard oh, of. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dylan Overton. Yeah. I, I think did he pitch for the White Sox at some point? I don't think so. Okay. Uh Christian Bergman. Oh, he he was a national maybe at one point. <laughs> uh yeah. These guys are not good. No, this is uh that's why you need well what it, what is it? The a team used on average eight starters per season, eight or nine maybe? Yeah, probably closer to nine. Nine. And I oh, so one thing I meant Bergman was a Rocky, he was a Rocky. Dylan Overton was an athletic apparently. Yeah. So. That sounds right. Um, let's say, say the number again. How many starters? Nine. Okay. And how many starters did the Mariners like kind of reasonably have entering the season? Four. No. Oh. Well, that was that's too few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like their fifth starter was Giovanni Gallardo, who you shouldn't want in your rotation. And then the guys currently pitching were their six, seven, eight, nine. 
So, uh, yeah, this is a, a team that lacked rotation depth and was basically betting on their entire rotation to stay healthy, and now that entire rotation is hurt. In fact, right, they called so, him Ryan Weber to start on, I think, Saturday. Yes, I do recall. He is like a, a soft-tossing, crafty, yeah. righty ground baller from Atlanta. Yeah, he lasted one inning before he left with shoulder problems. No, he he got injured too? Yeah, so he's on the DL. So they literally have five starting pitchers on the table list. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's not good at all. Now, in the meantime, Cameron, I've sent you a link, uh, or I sent you an attachment. That's the it's my uh, by way of email. That's my uh, that's my backyard. Just to give you an idea, maybe you can describe it. Uh, and, uh, mud hole. Yeah. <laughs> what team is that to you? It might maybe it's not even a 2017 team. Uh, this could be the Toledo Mud Hens if there were some chickens in the picture. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's what we're working with. But this is a very much a rebuilding team. Uh, it's a rebuilding yard. But you're right. Maybe I did take it from a sort of mediocrity, but it was a mediocrity that you knew was not going to transform into anything better, right? Right. It was like that team. It's like the team just worse than the team that's playing to see. That's like betting on the fact that eight wins is the standard deviation. Uh, so they can get a, the second wild card or something. You didn't want to be the 2016 White Sox. Right. Is that, oh, right. I guess that's what they, how they, cause they had what, like five good veterans and then. Yeah, 20 bad yeah. players. Five really good veterans, actually. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, Chris Sale. Yeah, Sale and Quintana and. Adam Eaton. Eaton was good, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, Bray U. Bray was fine. Todd yeah. Frazier's okay. Todd Frazier's okay, right. Yeah. And, and then, then it gets some, worse in a hurry. And then it got worse after that, yeah. Now, uh, can I actually ask you uh, about the Phillies? Because you've uh, written sure. about Aaron Alt. Uh, can we get a pronunciation check first Alt- of all? Altair. Aaron Altair, right. Can we, um, <clears throat> Aaron Alt- Altair is hitting well for the Phillies. You've, he and, is. Um, you've written about him twice in the past week. Yeah, um, that's true, yeah. Yeah, and I'm curious about Altair for a couple reasons. One is, I guess he wasn't really a prospect, um, but he's been kind of hovering around the, the, the higher-ish minors for the team in the last few years. Yeah, it was a late bloomer, right? So ninth round pick out of high school, a good athlete who didn't really hit until he was 24. And mm-hmm. uh, I think Jeff Sullivan kind of noted, like, at age 24, he found some power in tennis strikeout rate basically in half, which is a good thing to do. Yeah, but he was a 24-year-old in double-A to start that year, which is not usually someone you care a lot about. But right. as a good athlete, anytime you hit it all, they're just going to be like, well, if this is real, then you're a good player because everything else was already in place. Uh, but right, Altair basically, from 2009 when he was drafted until – 2014, his minor league track record did not suggest he was a major league player. Well, that's why I was curious about his prospect status up till now because, um, given given what I had known, given the fact that he had not appeared at the top, uh, towards the top of like, well, certainly he was absent from all top 100 lists, and the fact that he had not appeared at the top of Phillies lists, I had assumed that he was the sort of player who, like, physically would look like that, you know, who would look more of the fringy type, right. the sort of players that I. Yeah. Uh, to whom I'm, uh, I typically gravitate, which is, you know, like 5'10 and, you know, physically maxed out and, you know, is either like a corner outfielder is not going to – I mean, I guess I knew he was an outfielder, so I figured he was a corner guy. But – and so when I turned on the TV uh, and saw Altair playing, I guess, for the first time, I have not typically found much cause to go to Phillies games, but I did in this particular case. I noticed he's like this – like like he has that – he has like – that ideal outfielder's body. He's yeah. like six five, thin. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's you know, it's every outfielder you can imagine. It's. Uh, he doesn't look that different from like Byron Buxton. No, he doesn't. No, it's yeah, it's right. that exact exact frame. Those long, 
levers, levers, right. longer yeah. levers. So I guess I was surprised, and so I thought, well, what, what the hell? Why wasn't this guy pressed? Because that's the that's the, the exact frame you look for an outfielder. But um, but yeah, I guess as you point out, it was the offense. Now, do we know? Do we know? We know for, for a fact that at least one adjustment occurred at some point. Do we know what made him better before that? Yeah, I've been saying we don't uh, have like just direct quotes of like here's why I got good. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think they've, they've talked. Pete McEnan and uh, and Matt Stairs, who's now the Phillies hitting coach, have talked about the length of his swing and how uh, that was really the problem previously. Is his swing was just too long, which is a pretty common thing for tall guys, especially guys who were developing uh, straight out of high school, so didn't go to college. Um, to have an overly long swing is is I would say normal. Um, and they've talked about how they've shortened his swing significantly to where um, they've removed some of the kind of mechanical hitches he used to have, and that's why he's able to tap into his power in a way that he didn't used to while kind of keeping his contact rates at least at reasonable levels. Now, would you say that, that it's typical of high school guys? Is that because they have not had to they've not had to become as mechanically efficient because they're just better than everyone against whom they're playing? Well, I think, I mean, my understanding of it is that if you are uh, a guy with a long swing, that doesn't really affect you until you can face high velocity inside. That's really the weakness of a long swing, is if okay. if pitchers are pitching you away, that's fine, long swing can go get a ball on the outside of the part of the plate, and if you're facing low velocity, you have enough time to kind of start your swing early enough to get the barrel of the ball. Um, generally, guys with long swings, you'll hear them say, you know, once they start facing 95 on the hands, that's when they're going to get exposed. And so a guy like Altair in high school, if he's regularly sitting, like, you know, 82-mile-an-hour fastballs, long swing's not going to hurt him. But once he faces pros who are sitting in the 90s, that's when you, you really need to make some adjustments. Right, okay. And so what was... Uh... To what degree was Altair part of the Phillies' plans entering the season? So they um, had hopes for him last year after he had a strong rookie season in 2015 or half a season. Um, So he was going into last year as one of their starting outfielders, except he got hurt. And then he was not good when he came back at all. He was was like a 64 WRC plus or something. So this offseason they decided they didn't want to count on Altair as a regular for them. So they went and signed Michael Saunders and Howie Kendrick to, to, to take over right and left field respectively, which forced Altair into a fourth outfielder role. So uh, as a right-hander, the expectation, I think, was that he was going to platoon with Saunders probably. And so probably play a couple days a week. And then if he played well, maybe earn a little bit more playing time. Uh, he's played well enough that when Howie Kendrick went on the DL, he basically just stepped into everyday role. And I cannot imagine that they're going to take him out of that role when Kendrick comes back. Uh, so I wouldn't be shocked if Saunders and Kendrick began to platoon. Uh, Altair may not play every single day just because they're probably going to want those veterans to uh, have some playing time. So they're potentially trade baits this summer. But I would imagine Altair has gone from something like a fourth outfielder to almost everyday guy. All right. I want to ask you, and, and I think Altair is a, is a uh, is a useful entry point in this conversation, as is a, a post that um, Travis Sawtrick wrote. Oh, what was his Buxton piece? Was that yesterday? Yeah, was Monday. Monday? Yeah. yeah, Monday. Okay. Um, because there's also uh, the uh, there's also an evocation of a conversation. Uh, in that post, and of course we've seen this a bunch of times, and I think we even spoke about it last week with regard to Yonder Alonso announcing that he was going, he he was a swing changer, right? Yeah. Or uh, to to some degree, he wasn't purely a launch angle guy, but he decided he was going to punish the ball, right? right. Um, <clears throat> here's here's my point of interest. Now you wrote, um, you cited a post that Jeff Sullivan wrote over the off season, right? Who in his post 
uh, he cited a, a post that David Lorla had written. And David Lorla, uh, David Lorla uh, was in conversation with Pete Mackinnon, the coach or the manager of the, the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, in that conversation, Mackinnon states that uh, a guy who jumps out to me is Aaron Althair. He's adjusted his setup and his swing path. He's gone from a long swing to a shorter swing, et cetera, et cetera, right? This is, at some level, this is uh, someone close to Altair um, d- drawing direct attention to a, some sort of mechanical change. And what we've seen likely as a result is a is a pretty different guy on the field um, in terms of competence. Uh, Byron... Travis Sawchuk, writing about Byron Buxton, um, cites a conversation in, a, in an empty target field bat, you know, way before even batting practice really began between Byron Buxton and Paul Molitor and maybe a couple of the other guys in the field staff of that team. And since then, since he thought about um, when he was picking up the ball relative to his leg kick, um, uh, uh, he uh, Buxton's been better, I guess is the point. Yeah. <clears throat> and so... I'm curious at what here's my question at what point ought we to believe that an, that um, some sort of citation of a mechanical change whether it be from the player himself or for from a manager coach at what point ought we ought we to think or what is the probability that such a uh, mention of that actually translates to meaningful on-field production yeah I mean this is a challenging question right because a lot of times the the kind of changes are dramatic, right? Especially like a Yonder Alonso, right? Like this is a guy who never hit for power, is 30 years old. We have a lot of data that says Yonder Alonso doesn't have any power. Uh, if you want to buy into the idea that Yonder Alonso's swing has made him an entirely different player, then you're throwing out basically a decade's worth of data that says Yonder Alonso doesn't have any power, and now Yonder Alonso's some massive slugger. And so that's a uh, challenging thing to confront. And um, I, I, you want to be careful when you're removing essentially um, significant data from the record and saying we don't care about this anymore or we're you know deprecating the value of these of this past you know data because we don't think it's useful to inform what this player is now on the other hand there's just so many guys like Justin Turner or Jose Batista or whatever who became dramatically different players where if you continued to look at what they were previously you were going to miss what they had become and so um, you have this balancing act of of trying to uh, understand that players can and do make significant wholesale changes that dramatically overhaul their their skills, but not every single player who claims to make one of these changes is going to become Justin Turner. So I think you um, kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis, right? So like if, if a guy like Alonzo comes out and says, hey, look, you know, uh, I'm not really doing anything that dramatically different. I'm just trying to hit the ball harder. I didn't totally revamp my swing, you know, whatever. Um, and kind of downplays to some extent. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman's done this as well. Of like, I'm not actually that different. I'm just healthy this time. Uh, maybe you um, uh, don't give as much credence to the idea that this is a wholesale reno- renovation of their skill set as if you know you're like Jose, Jose Batista is probably the best example of kind of like one of the first guys who did this when he went to Toronto just became a dramatically different hitter than he had been previously and talked about the changes that he had made and the work that he had put in in order to to make those changes to his swing in order to sell out for pull power and obviously it worked out for him and so I think if a, if a player is kind of denying that he made these like dramatic changes to his game um, maybe put a little more credence in the fact that it could just be a hot start uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, a small sample size effect. Um, but if you have a guy who's, you know, uh, Daniel Murphy, for instance, who 
Um, clearly made some pretty big changes to his swing in the second half of 2015. Um, and, the, you know, Murphy has talked openly about kind of the process he's gone through with trying to get elevate the ball and pull the ball and then sell out for power while still maintaining his great contact rates. Um, I think if a, if a player like Murphy can kind of um, explain the changes he's made and why they work and kind of the process behind them, maybe you put a little more credence into those. Yeah, you bring up this point, too, about uh, how much data we ought to take seriously or, you know, looking backwards, you know, because if, if a guy really has uh, changed uh, himself, then maybe, you know, even the data from the end of the last year is meaningless. You know what I mean? Or not entirely meaningless, but it ought to be weighted a lot less. Whereas right. I think uh, most players, I don't know, what is the generic weighting that uh, Tango always used for his Marcel projections? I think it's like 5 three, one. Right, so five would be last year, yeah. f- five times as much as, as as one, and then three is the multiplier for two years ago, one is the multiplier for three years ago. Yeah, um, it might be five, three, two, but something like that, yeah. Right, but so now, <clears throat> and it's interesting because we could talk about it in a theoretical way, and then we can actually look at the Zips and Steamer numbers, but if you're attempting to devise a projection for, uh, for Yonder Alonso, for example, or mm-hmm. for Aaron Altair, what are your weights going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the the challenge, and, and you can't even really do it on a daily basis. You almost, or on a yearly basis, you almost need to do it on a daily basis. So I think like um, what you kind of want to do is just look at like the day by day performance and weight that, you know, whether point nine nine or point nine seven or something like that, and then you know deprecate it as the further back you go, because you even see guys making significant changes within seasons, right? So it's like you don't just want to be like, okay, well we're just putting full weight on the total season line. If a guy like Daniel Murphy who makes that huge second half adjustment in 2015, it was clearly a very different hitter at the end of the year than he was in the beginning of the year. So I think this is one of the things that. The teams and, you know, players themselves kind of have to confront probably more teams because I don't think players are running their own projections on themselves, but, um, is how, how quickly do we respond to dramatic changes in not just performance, but, um, kind of skills or, uh, process-based results? Like, so if you, if you have a guy who's, you know, goes from hitting the ball 93 in the air to 98 in the air by stat cast, you probably care about that more than you care about his ISO. Um, and then how quickly do you adjust the, kind of older valuation when he was hitting 93 in the air if he's now hitting 98. The, the, the numbers that Aaron Altair has gone from last year to this year is like how much did, how much weight do we put on Altair's, you know, 225 plate appearances last year where he hit for no power when we have, you know, now 100 plate appearances where he's hitting for Giancarlo Stanton levels of power. Yeah, you know, you, you bring up the, uh, uh, the just as an aside, the idea of a player uh, producing his own projections. That would be novel. Well, um, I bet Cole Figueroa could have done it. That's right. Yeah, he's probably interested. In it, but I would guess if you just asked them to, uh, you know, subjectively produce uh, projections, they would all probably – and you'd probably want them to be, right? You'd probably want them to overestimate their skills. Yeah, they would all be like, I'm going to hit 45 homers and drive it 160 runs. Yeah. And you'd be like, what's my, what's your WOBA? And they would all be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, what are you talking Well, they wouldn't all be like that, but <coughs> – but yeah. Uh, yeah, I wonder if uh, I wonder how that would look if you had all the players project their end of season lines. By that would be numbers. pretty interesting. It'd probably look a lot like the fans' projections. It probably would be. But I wonder. I mean, what do you say about the guy who actually outperforms his own projection of himself, or you know, under or kind of gives himself a uh, just a middling or mediocre projection? Maybe send that guy to a confidence coach. Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be hard to say. Uh, Just as an update with regard to the projection, Yonder Alonso, um, whose career high in home runs entering the season was nine when he had over 600 uh, plate appearances for the Padres in 2012. Uh, Of course, that same Yonder Alonso now has 12 home runs, just three more than his career high, in uh, merely 130 plate appearances. So we, we asked the question, well, what sort of weighting would you use? Uh, well, I can't I can't answer exactly uh, what the weighting is used either by Zips or Steamer, but it's pretty clear that the current season's numbers are taking a large role in the projection because, uh, on average, over the next 450 or so plate appearances, Alonzo, when you combine Zips and Steamer, is projected to hit 13 more home runs. Wow. Which would give him 25 total, which right. is nearly three times his uh, his previous high. Right. Um, so there's obviously some sense from the projection systems, even using this sort of I – mean, it is. It's a generic weighting, right? It has yeah. to apply to all players. Right. Um, and the, these systems are not necessarily telling you um, what you um, – they're not you know, They're not telling you specifically about this player. They're saying this, this works for the overall population on average. Uh, even those are fairly encouraged by his um, – by the power a lot. Now, I will say, despite the fact that – uh, Alonzo himself, I don't think necessarily, at least in conversation with Eno Saris, uh, while he never said anything really about launch angle, he mentioned merely he was trying to punish the ball. He has he has almost halved, or he basically halved uh, his career ground ball rate. Yeah, uh, yeah. so he definitely, it's almost certainly not an accident, right? So he's still he's still getting in there. Travis Ochik has been, as you've noted, yeah. uh, all over this. Yeah. Uh, certain players doing this, and some guys appear to be going too low. Uh, does not. That's not a reference to Troy Tulowitz. Uh-huh. I mean, they appear to be going uh, too low in terms of right. uh, ground ball rate, hitting right. the ball in the air too often. But uh, that does not to be appear to be hamstringing Yonder Alonso quite yet. Do you want to hear a fun Yonder Alonso story? Yes, I would like to. So last week or over the weekend, I can't remember exactly what it was. I was uh, texting with a friend of mine. I think it was last week after I wrote the Yonder Alonso post, uh, who works in baseball. Um, and he or he was texting me, I guess, and he just said, you know, I just want to put a. Just put it on the record. I don't buy into Yonzo Alonso's power. We can talk about this later, but, you know, I don't think he's going to – he's not going to keep this up or something along those lines. And then uh, – so we talk about briefly, but um, don't get into any real depth. Maybe eight hours later that evening, uh, I received a text, uh, again, from the same individual. says, ah, crap, he's going to make me look stupid. And mm-hmm. apparently, then I checked my phone, and Yonder Alonso had just hit another home run. And then about an hour after that, I received a text that says, delete all my messages from this morning, because Yonder Alonso hit his second home run of the evening uh, on the same day that said baseball person was like, nah, this isn't going to last. So um, uh, even, uh, you know, people with uh, who, who this is their life work, and this is what they do for a living, um, they can... Um, uh, maybe have their minds changed fairly quickly after saying, oh, I'm putting a flag in the ground. Yonder Alonso has no power. And then 10 hours later, they're like, well, maybe. Yeah, well, it was actually a bit a bit frustrating, although uh, it also illustrated your point, uh, or the point we were making, I think, pretty well, is that you had cited, uh, last week when we recorded, you had cited Alonso's home run totals. You said he had nine home runs. In the time between uh, we recorded and I edited and published the podcast, he had to hit two home runs. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, in in rendering your uh, citation of his of his uh, home run totals incorrect, he actually proved to the point, of course, that he is continuing to hit many. We home should runs. make this a weekly game. How many home runs will Yonder Alonso hit in between the time that it takes you to publish this podcast? 
Yeah. Well, how many do you think it'll be this time? Because it's not going to come up until tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to go with four. And you think he's going to hit four? Yeah. I think that's me betting against you publishing the podcast tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> I think he's going to hit one. I do have to help my wife paint a room, so... Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll I'm going to go with five, then. Okay. Five. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, okay, Cameron. I want to ask you... Um, so we've talked about Altair a little bit. Just just to, to, to tidy up this... Um, this this is the last little bit about the Altair conversation. Is it is he the product like his outbreak right now? Is this the product? Is this something that can that's not can only happen, but is much more likely to happen on a team like the Phillies? That like my backyard uh, is in a current state where anything that works is going to stick around. Uh, I mean, to some extent, that's true. Like the rebuilding teams, like the Phillies, can give these guys more runway. Where you could be like, well, you know, these games don't really matter. If Aaron Altair is a star, that's the most important thing we found out this year. So we can afford to play him through some slumps where if you're a winning team and you're playing one of these guys and you're like, we're not really sure what this guy is, and then he goes 0 for 50, I can play you out of the postseason. But I think, like, a decent number of um, postseason teams lately have kind of run into these guys, right? Like, uh, you know, Daniel Murphy with the Mets, right? Like, he was going to play anyway, but then, like, you know, had that dramatic change, and then the Nationals signed him, and he turned into an MVP and carried them to the postseason. So it's not like these changes only ever happen uh, with losing teams, um, but losing teams certainly have the ability to kind of play these guys through their slumps and say, you know, like um, Mitch Hanniger, for instance, like the Diamondbacks might have been like, well, we're trying to win. We can't really afford to see what Mitch Hanniger is going to do, uh, you know, in a, in a season where we're trying to win. But, you know, based on what he's done early in this year, you'd say, well, maybe it would have been better if they could have given him that opportunity. Right. Okay. All right. Just curious about that. Uh, I want to ask you another thing. Just this is a very basic leaderboard-based question, um, as uh, I'm sure many of us do. I, w- I took to the war leaderboards for hitters at Fangraphs.com. And, um, well, first of all, very conveniently, the two of the, the best young stars are right at the top of the leaderboard, Bryce Harper and Mike Trout, each with more than two and a half wins. Uh, probably not surprising that. this this uh, The top of the leaderboard is clogged with a, a type of hitter, though. Um, there's this There's a whole group of... Like kind of immobile, but uh, hitters who are you know runners generally, but who guys who are just slamming the ball so hard. Uh, I mean, Miguel Sano is up there, Aaron Judge, uh, and Eric. Tha- I mean, Eric Thames. You know, those all three have been uh, stories to a certain extent at the beginning of the season. And I don't know if if it's just. It, it seems as though uh, in in recent years, we had seen the. Not necessarily the emergence, but the um, if the scale was tipping, it was tipping maybe towards a a more well-rounded player, um, a guy who who sort of did everything. And that's not to say, I mean, you know, Mookie Betts and Francisco Lindor are both within shouting distance of the top of the leaderboard, so maybe it's not that crazy. But is there anything to suggest that that uh, the sort of uh, slugging but uh, not particularly mobile corner types? Um, would they have a uh, a type of renaissance in the league, or is there anything to to, or is this just individual players who happen to be performing well in a month and a half of baseball? I think it's actually door number three. You're uh, oh. incorrectly assessing their skill sets. So like Aaron Judge is actually a really good athlete. Like he's an above average defensive right fielder. Uh, he moves pretty well. I mean six seven, so like he's not Billy Hamilton, but for a guy his size, he moves exceptionally well. 
Uh, Miguel Sano is a gigantic human being, but I think I, I wrote a post over the winter about, like, Sano is actually kind of a, an interesting athlete in terms of, like, reaction time. Uh, and Yes, I recall that post. Because ha- didn't he have yeah. the most, like, four yeah, catches? Yeah, like, two crazy good catches as an outfielder, neither of which he didn't yeah. cover any ground. He went, like, 40 feet both times. But it suggested, like, you know, he was capable of going 40 feet relatively quickly, and maybe this suggested that he would be an okay defensive third baseman, and I think so far to this point, Miguel Sano's been a decent enough defensive third baseman. Um, so Sano's not a DH like he kind of looked like at times last year. Uh, he's a guy who can maybe play an actual position at the major league level at a reasonable uh, in a reasonable way. Um, Eric Thames plays some outfield for the Twins or for the Brewers when he's not playing first base. Uh, is obviously a very strong human being, but not, like, you know, wildly out of shape. Um He's not a great defensive outfielder, but I think he's an okay athlete. So I would say that those three guys don't really, they're not the Mark Trumbos of the world, although Trumbos like a decent athlete himself, just not, not good defensively. Um, none of the, none of these guys are Prince Fielder, right? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know that I would look at these guys and say, oh man, you know, the bulky, uh, you know, the defensively limited players coming back. These guys are all like okay athletes. So, so maybe, uh, yeah, so maybe that's it. Maybe uh, this misdiagnosis, but it might also be that there's an emergence of, or at least a, a, a quantity of a certain type of player that has not existed in the league, which is giant people. Now, obviously, I mean, these are Eric, I mean, no one's really like Aaron Judge right. in terms of yeah. size, uh, but Miguel Sano is obviously a pretty big, hefty dude, and Eric Thames is not, um, as tall as either of them. I think he's only around six feet, but he's, I mean, he has a substantial musculature, yeah. but they're relatively mobile. You're suggesting so. Maybe there's just a type of athleticism present in these players um, that, uh, or at least to which, uh, to my mind, is not uh, particularly frequent. Yeah, I mean, I think like it could be with the games kind of move towards strikeouts and home runs, the teams are now more willing to play strikeout and home run guys. Like you know, the last couple of years, Joey Gallo had hung out in the minor leagues. Because he, and Gallo again, is a pretty good athlete for a big guy, moves pretty well, plays a good third base. Um, you know, this was a player who wasn't really welcome in Major League Baseball because he had some significant holes making contact, but he hits a lot of home runs and hits some very impressive home runs. Uh, with Adrian Beltre Hurt, the Raiders have played Joey Gallo and it's turned out pretty well for them so far. Um, so it may be that this kind of skill set is being more widely accepted than it was 20 years ago when like Russell Brannion was this guy but couldn't really crack a full-time job and and kept bouncing between the minors and the major leagues. Uh, it might be the teams now looking at it and be like, well, whatever, 40% strikeout rate, but you do all these other things really well, we'll live with it. You know, it's interesting to bring up Joey Gallo because <clears throat> I had occasion to think of him today. He has a very strange batting line yeah. right now. Uh, he has He's he's batting 195, um, which is below average. I think that's probably pretty clear. He has a uh, an OBP or a... 313, which is probably a, sm- a smooch below, a scooch below average in the league right now, but not too much is my guess. Uh, and then a 537 slugging. Now, none of that is very surprising if you've seen Jolly Gallo, but it is an unusual, but he's an unusual player. This is why. And the whole thing is uh, adds up to 26% better than league average. Um, now, <clears throat> we have previously considered this question. I've certainly asked you this question. I think we probably discussed it with regard to Chris Davis, if um, in, um, among other players, and that is uh, these sort of hitters who are themselves they they pose a question just by existing, which is how how hard and uh, and often do you have to hit the ball or or what sort of power numbers do you have to put up to make a 
to make a crazy extreme strikeout rate hold up? Like, where is that? Where where is that tension? Where are they finding the um, equilibrium between strikeout rate and power? Joey Gallo is just under forty percent in terms of strikeout rate right now, um, but he's also hit twelve home runs. He's got a three forty one isolated power figure. So he, I don't know, is do you think he's like the the most telling example of the guy who's attempting to survive with that equilibrium at this point? Yeah, probably. He's probably very close to the line. Um, yeah. I think, like, it seems like around 40% kind of is that limit, where if you strike out more than 40% of your bats, or you make contact, like, less than 65% of the time, uh, you know, that's old-school Mark Reynolds, right? Like, that's, like, you're just not going to be an everyday player. Not Like, no amount of power is going to make up for the fact that you're just not putting the ball in play that frequently. Um so I think that Gallo is probably currently the closest guy to the line of like making it work, but if the power slips at all, then the, then the rest of it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean I don't know. Like we used to have this conversation about Russell Brannion too, and Russell Brannion only actually struck out about a third of the time. Right, but that was at a time when the league average was fifteen percent. Precisely right. So probably indexed, yeah, it's about right. the same. But the raw numbers are changing. Yeah. Which probably isn't surprising to say, but uh, but they yeah. are. I mean, yeah. there didn't like it used to be. If you strike out forty percent of the time, you just couldn't play. Do you think if Russell Brannion, like, I don't know what era Russell Brannion, whichever one got the most played appearances? I guess the Mariners version actually did. Do you think? I don't know. Do you think if he were thirty years old today, do you think he would be used in any different way than he was when he played? Yeah, the I league? think so. I think there was probably a little bit of a. Um, still a resistance to that kind of high strikeout guy that doesn't exist today. So I think he might he might play a little more now than he did then. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Cameron, you've uh, fulfilled your obligation. Let's Wait, what have we talked about? We talked about Aaron Altair. We talked about home runs and how I misdiagnosed the athleticism of some larger players. Your lawn. Talked about my, my lawn. child. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see if that made the we'll see if that made the conversation that the people have heard. It's always room to move, to maneuver. And you think there's going to be four home runs, five home runs by Yonder Alonso between the time we finished this recording and I actually published it. Yeah, seems like a fair over-under. Adam Frazier batting 317. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Cameron, thank You're you very welcome. much. That has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestule. This has been Fangraphs Audio.